Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Professor Sharon Shoemake. Not only is Sharon a professor of environmental economics at Western Washington University, she also represents Washington's 42nd legislative district in the State House. I'll talk with Sharon about some of the details of Washington's plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the power sector to zero by 2045. We'll also talk about other state policies that affect energy and the environment, and Sharon will give us her perspective on how researchers can more effectively engage with policymakers. Stay with us. Okay, Sharon Shoemake from the great state of Washington, a state legislator and an energy economist at Western Washington University. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. It's so wonderful to have someone who has the academic experience and the environmental experience and also the political experience to talk about these, uh, to talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is the confluence of all those things and uh, energy policy and environmental policy in the state of Washington. But before we get into uh, the details, can you tell us first how you got interested in energy and environmental topics to begin with? So I was a freshman and I knew Daniel Ramey actually as a freshman college student, and I really (laughs) wanted to make a difference in the world. Um, And I kind of stumbled upon economics. I was taking environmental policy and science courses because I really liked learning about science. And I just discovered that I loved it. It was, you take your intro class and it leads to so many more classes. And I ended up doing environmental economics because I really cared about the environment. I wanted to tackle climate change. Um, And then the other thing that I think is really important is eliminating deep levels of poverty. Um, And economics was really wonderful because it kind of cut through arguments that Sometimes you would hear something in another discipline and you didn't really know what the right answer was or there were competing ideas and there's still competing ideas in economics, but then we go out and we measure things and we run models and we really try and get this objectively as possible. And I thought that was just really addictive. Yeah, that makes sense. And in case any any listener didn't get the, the, the quick reference to you knowing me as a freshman. So uh, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, where Duke University is. You were a freshman at Duke. And the dorm that you lived in freshman year, I think I'm getting this right. The dorm that you lived in, my parents were like dorm parents in that uh, dorm. And so I lived in that dorm when you were a freshman. That's Is that right? Yeah. And we didn't figure it out till 15 years later or something. It was... Yeah. A total aha great. moment. Right. And you know our you knew our dog, William Wallace. Yes. He was a good dog. Yes. Well, he wasn't actually a good dog, but we won't dwell on that. <laughs> uh, so um, so we're going to talk about energy policy, environmental policy in Washington State. Uh, let me give a little bit of background on a bill that passed, uh, I believe, in the spring, late spring in Washington, called the Clean Energy Transformation Act, which uh, does a variety of things. It eliminates uh, coal-fired electricity by 2025. It encourages utilities to get to carbon neutrality by 2030, but it allows for some flexibility in there uh, if they can't quite get to zero by 2030. And then there seems to be a pretty firm target of net zero emissions by the year 2045. Um, There are some exceptions for emergencies and for ensuring reliability of the power supply, um, but, but that's clearly the target is zero emissions by 2045. There's also some provisions in the bill that limits the rate of cost increases for for payers uh, or for, for ratepayers, I should say. And, you know, there's a whole lot more in the legislation, but th- those are just some of the high points that that st- stood out to me. And I was hoping, Sharon, you could tell us um, a little bit about 
the policy environment that this legislation kind of stepped into. So uh, what major policies were in place prior to this most recent legislation? And, and of course, please feel free to add or, or correct me on any mistakes I may have made characterizing uh, the, the most recent uh, act. Yeah, so we've been calling this 100% clean, even if it's really 98% clean, which might be more economically efficient anyway. <laughs> um, and this was really built on, we have a renewable portfolio standard, and this was an initiative that was passed in 2006 by the voters. And Washington state has this enormous resource of hydroelectricity. It's about 70% of our electricity um, production. And the renewable portfolio standard was requiring 15% by 2030 of non-hydro or at least incremental hydro to be renewable. And so it was kind of building on this program of renewable energy credits that we were able to kind of push forward with 100% clean. We also had some other projects that also in part of that initiative, it required utilities to do all conservation that's cost-effective, reliable, and feasible. There were some tax incentives for renewables. We have net metering in place. There's greenhouse gas emission standards for new electricity generators. Utilities have to go through this planning process. It's an integrated resource plan or an IRP, if people have heard this. And then we have some other policies too. You can kind of look around in the budget if you wanna see what a state cares about. And in our state, you'll see in the capital budget, we have incentives for upgrading the energy efficiency of residential homes. We have some programs for green cars and electric charging infrastructure. And we're hoping to get some electric ferries coming up soon, or at least hybrid electric ferries, which is pretty exciting for yeah. a state that has so many islands. Yeah. So the other piece that this was really built on 100% clean was a 2011 agreement between the governor and the last coal-fired power plant in, in Washington state, which is in Centralia. And that was already agreed to shut down in 2025. So it was the 100% clean bill is kind of taking credit for that, but it's building on things that had already been going on. And in a lot of ways, Washington state was on this path of being 100% clean. This act just kind of increased that. Right. Yeah. And we're going to uh, come back to the coal issue in, in just a couple of minutes, but that's really relevant to to know that actually that was the idea of shutting it down by 2025 was in place already. And it's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, before we get into more kind of meat of the bill itself, can you tell us a little more about the political process of sort of bringing the bill uh, through the legislature and then obviously getting signed by the governor? Um, was it a pretty sort of partisan process? Was there a lot of collaboration across party lines? Kind of how, how did it unfold in the political arena? So fun fact, I was elected in 2018 and all the bills that come through the 2019 legislature are things that people past legislators have already worked on, right? Mm -hmm. um, so by the time I was sworn in, this bill was mostly baked. There was still a long process with the utilities and running it through the committees and we talked through all of this, but I was not the lead person. On, they wouldn't give a new legislator a bill this important. Right. Um, as to the partisanship of it, if you look at who voted for it, no Republicans voted for it. Mm -hmm. um, there's one state senator who caucuses with the Republicans, but he's technically a Democrat. And he voted yes. So that's as close as you can come to a Republican voting for the bill. And we had one Democrat vote no. Um, but otherwise, it broke down on party lines the entire way. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of attempts to get to make this bipartisan. There were a lot of conversations between Democrats and Republicans. One of the things that 
really I appreciated about Olympia was how much, even when Democrats have control of both houses and the governorship, there's still a lot of attempt to make things work across party lines. And this is certainly true with climate. Yeah, that makes sense. And just in case anyone doesn't remember their fifth grade capital lesson, Olympia is the capital of Washington. <laughs> For a minute when you said that, I thought about Olympia snow. And then, uh, <laughs> then I corrected myself in my head. Um, so, so let's get a little bit more into the meat of the legislation itself. So I mentioned a moment ago that the bill encourages utilities to get to carbon neutrality by 2030, but it also allows for some alternative compliance methods uh, if they can't quite reach that target. Can you talk a little bit about how that alternative compliance process is kind of set up and how it works and how it provides flexibility? So as an environmental economist, we all know that our favorite policy is a price on carbon. Um, and so the, one of the alternative compliance is kind of an administrative penalty, but it ends up being a carbon price of about $100 per ton. Um, and there are some methods to have that increase with fiscal growth factors or inflation. Um, it's not technically written in as a price of $100 per ton of carbon. It's per megawatt hour of electricity. Right. But it's um, you multiply it by 1.5 if it's coming from coal, and then you decrease it depending on the type of natural gas that's produced. Um, I, I argued for making it at, at first, it was just a hundred dollars per megawatt. I was like, well, why don't we at least differentiate by sources? Yeah. Um, and I wanted to see it be on a, the price of carbon directly because who knows what the next technology is going to be. Um, but that was shot down. Okay, great. So that's uh, really helpful to know. So there's not a direct carbon price, but there's kind of an implied carbon price going on in there. Um, one of the issues that I was thinking about as I was reading the legislation, and you've already touched on this, was uh, the idea of an energy transition, particularly for uh, coal plants and the workers who work there in the communities where the coal plants uh, are situated. Uh, I spoke with um, uh, uh, an official, Sarah Props, from uh, New Mexico uh, a couple months back on the podcast, and a really big piece of the puzzle for them was working out this transition assistance for people working in coal-fired power plants or working in coal mines. They have a number of coal mines in New Mexico. I don't think there are any big ones in Washington state. But can you talk a little bit about the uh, process of, you know, kind of working to phase out uh, coal electricity production in the state and whether there was sort of an energy transition angle to that process? So that was the big fight in 2011 was figuring out that phase out of coal I had a colleague who worked on doing some of the economics of this, and he was telling me that the most cost-effective thing would have been to shut the coal-fired power plant down much earlier. Um, and there was a coal mine in Centralia, and then they worked out something that would kind of maintain some of those jobs for longer, right? So that would be more of a transition. Um, as for in this particular bill, what 100% Clean did for the workers was they created tax credits that are pretty, it's a new thing that Washington's doing, where the tax credits are higher if you use union labor, and then if you pay prevailing wage, which is a wage that's the labor and industries, is a, sets a little bit, I don't know if they actually set it a little bit higher, but generally it's considered to be a little bit higher than what the market wage would be for these types of workers. And those are for the people in the renewable energy economy. So. What it's trying to do is it's trying to bump up those salaries to kind of compensate for any jobs that might be lost now in mostly natural gas facilities. Right. As far as I could tell, though, there wasn't any sort of direct 
um, at least in, in the most recent legislation, there wasn't sort of a direct path laid out for people working in coal or natural gas to transition specifically to those solar or wind or energy efficiency jobs, but instead sort of provisions to encourage the utilities to basically provide better working conditions for the people who end up in those jobs, whether they're from coal communities or not. I think there are, I think that's part of it. The coal communities, I think, are part of the 2011 legislation. So 100% clean. And I mean, that was already baked in, right? So anything that was happening there has already happened. Um, there was a, there's a big reluctance to take anything out of that discussion. The environmentalists and the coal community kind of came together and this was their compromise and nobody wants to open that can of worms again. Then the next question becomes for natural gas. And that's really what we're talking about transitioning away from with this bill. And that's where the replacement potentially with jobs from the green energy economy are coming from. Uh -huh. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and there's also some language in the bill that focuses on assistance for low income consumers of electricity. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that part of the legislation? Yeah, so this is kind of a more fun, innovative part of the bill is this focus on creating some low income assistance projects and then also making sure that another part of the bill that you can meet the cap are these energy transformation projects. And so I, I think of this as a firm specific cap and trade, right? So if you can't reduce your carbon emissions from your smokestacks, maybe what you can do is you can get people to switch to electric cars. So they're reducing their carbon emissions from what they would have been driving. You can invest in electric car infrastructure. And part of this, what it's trying to do is it's trying to make sure that that transition is equitable so that we're not just buying electric cars and putting charging structure infrastructure in the wealthy neighborhoods, but kind of putting this equity lens on it. And a lot of that, the mechanics are going to be decided by agencies, not legislators, which is probably what you want to do. Okay, uh, that makes sense. And uh, one other question that I had as I was thinking about Washington State relative to other states in the country that are looking at reducing their emissions, uh, some of them very ambitiously, is the fact that you mentioned earlier, which is that Washington uh, gets about 70% of its electricity today from hydro. Um, we were talking about natural gas and coal earlier. Uh, the state in 2018 generated about 9% of its electricity from gas and about 5% from coal. So when we think about the model developing, uh, developed in Washington, how, do you, how, how applicable do you think it is for other states uh, because of Washington's kind of unique characteristics uh, when it comes to its access to hydro resources. I mean, if you spend any time on the Energy Information Agency's website, you'll see that every state is unique. Um, you could argue that Hawaii has some great opportunities because the price of electricity is so high, so it's easier for renewables to come in and switch people away from petroleum into solar power. Um, Washington State, we have a relatively low price of electricity because of all this hydro, and I think the main lesson that people can learn from Washington State is that this really is incremental change, that we built on a renewable portfolio standard and then we kind of use this connection of RECs to uh, renewable energy credits, or is it renewable electricity credits, um, to create these 2030 targets that became attainable once utilities could see that pathway. Something else that we did with this bill is we fixed some of the other problems in the utility legislation. So we heard from utilities that they were when it came to being able to pass costs on, costs on to ratepayers, if they're building a renewable facility and there's some uncertainty in the technology, it's hard to make that case that they should be able to pass those costs on. And so we provided a little bit more certainty there for the utilities to have a better business environment. 
And by the end of this process, they came out as neutral on this bill, which I think is pretty huge for something that's really going to be changing their business climate. And that's something that I've learned so much in the legislature is that you can get people to agree to things that may not be in their direct best interests or that might make them feel nervous about their business model if you talk to them and you hear their concerns through it. There's so many more win-wins than we think are possible when we're an academic sitting in an office somewhere. Right. That makes sense. And I mean, I guess sort of a broader question, stepping back from the legislation itself, is it is so fascinating, your background in energy and environmental economics going into politics. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, other things that have been particularly noteworthy uh, in terms of your, you know, learning new things? And also in terms of many economists, you know, we often get acute I shouldn't say we, because I'm not a PhD economist, but economists often get accused of, you know, thinking only about first best or optimal solutions and may not be willing to compromise. Has your thinking about any of this, uh, you know, the interplay of politics and economics, has it changed much as you've actually started working in, in the legislature? I wish economists would come to the legislature and lobby their state legislators more. Um, I would love to have more economists in my office telling me that this is efficient or this isn't particularly efficient and hearing how things work. There were a few times in the legislature where I would explain, say, how inflation works. Um, and I'm not a macroeconomist, so I don't have deep thinking on this, but that was actually helpful to the conversation. Or one of the things we tried to do was we tried to make one of our taxes a little bit more progressive but people weren't making it marginal, right? So they were saying that the rate, it was a real estate excise tax. So the rate of your home is gonna be 0.9% if it's less than $500,000, and then it was gonna to increase to 1.28 if it was $501,000, right? So you're never gonna see a house for sale for $502,000 because you'd actually take home less money as a result of this. And so I, I worked a little bit and I did some spreadsheet stuff using some data I had to kind of help them figure out a better tax structure that we could still raise the money we needed while also giving better incentives and not creating this wonky discontinuity. Um, so I think that information is really valuable. And it's not, this isn't some really gigantic model that requires a special computer to run. Um, it's just some basic economics that legislators may not be as great as we hope they would be on it. Um, so I think there's tremendous opportunity in furthering this discussion. In terms of first best, second best, third best, sometimes the policies that we look at aren't necessarily available to the politicians. So um, I ran because I'd like to see a price on carbon. We've had two failed initiative on carbon taxes in Washington state. I was kind of expecting the second one that was on the ballot the same year as me to go through. But I thought that if it didn't go through, then maybe having an economist in the legislature that can kind of respond to some of the questions people have would be helpful. We're still working on that discussion. But one of the policies that is more likely to pass right now is a low carbon fuel standard. And that is not my favorite policy. Um, and so I, I tried to, the intuition of how the low carbon fuel standard works is that you're in decreasing the fuel intensity. So a gallon of gasoline produces 100% of the emissions of a gallon of gasoline, but maybe ethanol produces 70% as much. And the idea is that you would subsidize a little bit more ethanol and the people using gasoline would have to pay into that. I tried to figure out, well, does this actually reduce emissions? What are the marginal costs? And there wasn't a whole lot of research on this. And instead, there's all these research on the fourth order effects of carbon taxes and cap and trade systems. And it would be really helpful to have more people working on the low carbon fuel standard, which is a policy that's being really discussed right now. And we already have two states doing it. 
Um, but I wasn't able to find much on that, which was frustrating. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, California is a state that comes to mind when I think about low carbon fuel standard. Um, and yeah, we talk a lot about uh, at RFF about trying to do policy relevant work. And one of the challenges, less so for RFF, but more so, I think, for academic uh, economists is the incentives aren't always aligned to sort of do work that is relevant, especially on the timescale that policymakers might need it to be. Do you have any thoughts about kind of how incentives in academia might be able to be tweaked a little bit to, to make that more possible? Here's the thing. I think most of us in academia get into this because we want to make a difference. We, we count our success by publications, but that is not why I do this. An extra publication that nobody reads, even if it gets cited a whole lot, but isn't important to the world, doesn't mean a whole lot to me. And that's never been work worth the effort. Um, so I think once you get tenure, I think a lot of people actually do want to do this. They just don't necessarily know how to engage with their policymakers. And I'd like to create and facilitate that sort of engagement between the academic economists who are working on applied practical research with the people who are in the legislature that could use more of that research and better understandings of that research. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, I mean, there's having worked a little bit at the intersection of academia and policymaking myself, there there's clearly an appetite on both sides of the equation to make that happen. It's just sort of coordinating it and bringing people together in a way that actually makes sense and aligns incentives is, is actually, you know, that's the hard part. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm totally on board with you that, that it would be great to do more of it. One thing that every one of us can do that's sitting at a university is you can go lobby your state legislator and say, look, these are my ex areas of expertise. I don't know what you're working on, but send me to the people who are working on these areas of expertise. And I'd love to be a sounding board. Mm -hmm. And practically, what's the best way to do that? Is send emails, call, physically go to the legislature? Our universities have a lobby day where they go and they usually lobby for higher ed. That would be one start, but you can call up your state legislator. You'll probably get their assistant and their assistant can schedule a time for you to come in and introduce yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Yeah, that's really useful to know. So we've uh, gone away a little bit from the policy specifics going on in Washington, which is great. We've talked more about, you know, how... Uh, how this stuff all, all, all happened and how we can make the system work better as a whole. Um, but let's go back to Washington State and policy uh, for just a moment and think a little bit about uh, sectors beyond the electricity sector. So we've been talking only about electricity today so far, with the exception of the low carbon fuel standard. Um, but are there additional plans in the works along with the LCFS to reduce emissions in Washington State, including you know sectors like the residential sector, commercial sector, industrial sector, which is a big challenge, uh, or other other uh, parts of the economy. So after the failure of the last carbon tax initiative, the legislators were ready with a sector by sector strategy. The low carbon fuel standard failed, um, but we did see a green buildings bill. We did have some green transportation legislation. And then of course we had the 100% clean that was successful. I think that a carbon tax or a cap and trade system is still not dead. I think there were some blunders that were made with the last two initiatives, but I flipped a district talk from someone, my predecessor didn't believe climate change was real. And I talked to people about cost-effective climate legislation that both protects the environment and we can still contain jobs, we can still enjoy a materially rich lifestyle, which I think is what economists have argued is possible. Um, so I wouldn't count those out. But in the meantime, there will be some sector-by-sector -sector policies that kind of just make sense. Um, so one of them 
to tackle will be industrial natural gas. And we've been having conversations on that in the legislature. Um, there's a lot of movement on residential natural gas. I live in a pretty progressive city, Bellingham, Washington, which is where the university is. Both Bellingham and Seattle are talking about electrifying everything, but also no longer building out additional national, natural gas infrastructure to new homes and new subdivisions, which I think is a pretty big step. Something else that we're seeing is, we'll be seeing more transportation. So we had a green transportation bill that basically put a fee on electric vehicles. And the fee is less than what you'd pay with a gasoline tax, depending on your assumptions. And about $100 of that is to contribute to all the things that our gas tax pays for, but the rest of it is also building that infrastructure. I also think that if we wanna talk about transportation, then we've gotta talk about land use. And we've gotta talk about giving people alternatives to driving around in either an electric car or an internal combustion engine, and somehow figuring out a way to reduce vehicle miles traveled. And the more I'm in the state legislature, the more I'm realizing this is a hyper-local decision. And I've convinced a friend of mine to run for city council on the basis of better bike lanes and better bike ped infrastructure. Um, and then another thing that we're doing too is we're trying to get really in front of um, autonomous vehicles. So this could be something that results in a safer transportation network and a lower carbon one. Since autonomous vehicles, it's a little bit easier to charge them because they can just go off and charge and then come pick you up. Um, and then finally, the last piece that might be Washington specific is we have a whole lot of trees and trees are really good at sequestering carbon. So we had a bill that kind of got caught up in some of the dynamics in our state capital Olympia. But what we'd like to do is we'd like to figure out a way to get to start sequestering carbon and start kind of paying for that sequestration um, in both forests and on farms. And so we had two separate bills and hopefully we'll get a little bit further there. And then if we ever do get some sort of revenue generating carbon tax or cap and trade system, we can link that up to a sequestration opportunities as well. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. We, uh, I recently spoke with Robert Bonney, who does a lot of work on forests and we talked a lot about trying to create markets to incentivize, uh, landowners to, to, you know, sequester more carbon in, in forest land. And this would be a great way to lobby your state legislators, because I would love more information on that. That's easy to digest, and I don't have to spend tons of time learning. Yeah. Well, we should sign up the Washington State Legislature for, you know, automatic downloads of Resources Radio. That should be go. our first step. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Or we can do a live episode in Olympia. That'll be great. Um, so, uh, Sherry Chumik, thank you so much for, you know, talking with us about Washington State and policies there and, and so many other issues. I want us to close now with our final segment, which is called Top of the Stack, which is where we ask you what you've been reading or watching or listening to that you've enjoyed and you think our listeners would also enjoy. And um, I'll start us off with an article that I read just last night in The New Yorker, uh, which is from a, a recent issue. I'm not too far behind on my New Yorkers at the moment. And um, the article was about uh, fighting wildfire in California. The, it was called A Trailblazing Plan to Fight California Wildfires by the author Nicola Twilley uh, in the August 19th, 2019 edition of The New Yorker. And it was a fascinating sort of up-close look at some of the prescribed burns and other techniques that firefighters are using to reduce the risks of not wildfire per se, but catastrophic wildfire, the types that, you know, 
know, resulted in deaths uh, last year in California and enormous property damage. So it's, you know, one of those issues that's going to become more and more important as climate change, uh, you know, creates more challenges when it comes to wildfire uh, and, you know, is at the intersection of a lot of fascinating issues. So I definitely recommend checking that out if you're interested in land use and wildfire. Or, uh, and it's great writing, of course, because it's The New Yorker. So, so it's lovely. How about you, Sharon? Uh, what's on the top of your stack? Well, before I get to that, I just want to plug the wildfire because it's also, this is one of those issues that it's the people on the eastern part of our state that are really worried about wildfire right now. It's impacting their communities. And these are the people that it typically tends to be Republicans. And I think there is some sort of compromise between the people who want to see action on climate and generating money to fight wildfires right now and do some mm -hmm. of that prescribed burning and invest in you know bigger helicopters and whatnot to fight these fires. Um, yeah. So there's a, a really strong climate politics angle there as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. My sister actually lives in Spokane, Washington, which is on the eastern side of the state, and they had really horrible uh, effects of wildfires last year, last summer. The air quality was awful for you know, I think at least a week or two and, you know, people had to stay inside. So uh, it definitely makes sense that there's some motivation for action out there. Yeah, it's bad. And then the top of my list right now is that Planet Money episode that came out a few weeks ago on recycling. Um, it was a little bit depressing, but it also suggested that we need to find ways to deal with our waste streams that aren't counterproductive. And I thought it was just a really useful kind of reality check on that. Yeah, I didn't listen to that. Can you give me sort of the, the thumbnail sketch? The thumbnail sketch is that recycling is difficult. We feel like we're putting things back into the waste, into the um, consumption stream, and that'll just be reused again and again. But a lot of our recycling is contaminated. And so when we were shipping everything off to China, if they couldn't recycle it, if it was too contaminated because people think that they can recycle diapers and there's all these desire recycling, um, then it often ends up getting dumped in the ocean sometimes. And so they made this argument that if you're going to put something in the recycling, it's more likely to end up in this great Pacific Ocean patch than if you were to just put it in the garbage. And so there's some suggestions that recycling is not as environmentally beneficial as we think, but if we were to say, we'll stop recycling, then we'd have to retrain consumers once we do figure this out. I thought it was a really important call to, I, I hear it from my constituents that people really wanna see less garbage going into landfills. Um, and whether or not this is the most environmentally beneficial thing that can happen, there's kind of a, aesthetic reason, there's a value reason that people want to do it. Um, and one of the things that I'd like to start talking to people about is burning their garbage more. So we ship our garbage south down I-5 and then over to the other side of the mountain where it's not as rainy as it is here in western Washington. Um, I think that's a huge waste. I'd like to burn it more locally and not create all that congestion of trucks on I-5. Hmm. Fascinating. So like more like municipal solid waste, like electricity generation? Yeah. We can do that Great. a lot cleaner than the old incinerators aren't very popular, but now there's cleaner incinerators and it just becomes a question of, well, do we have the political will to go ahead and do this? And are we going to educate the public on how this is a better alternative than shipping it across the mountains and explaining that you're probably not going to be able to recycle your yogurt containers, so we might as well burn them. Hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I'll have to check that out. I hadn't really thought about that much, but fascinating. Uh, and we'll have a link to the Planet Money episode that you mentioned on our show notes so people can go listen for themselves and, and see what they think. Uh, but we'll stop there and say thank you again, Sharon Shoemake, for joining us on Resources Radio and telling us all about energy and environmental policy in Washington State and so much more. Thank you. 
been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.